Hey, 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 welcome to episode 18 of the Tata Cancer podcast. In today's episode, I will be speaking with the author and former uh, oncology nurse, Teresa Brown, RN, who has been a best New York Times bestselling author. She just recently released a new book called Healing, when a nurse becomes a patient. And uh, she released that in April of this year. So um, Teresa is taking this really interesting stance because she was an oncology nurse for many years and really felt like she knew cancer inside and out, but it wasn't until she was diagnosed with breast cancer herself that she realized she knew very little about actually being a cancer patient, um, how terrifying having cancer it is, ha- having cancer is how lonely it is. Um, Teresa is a frequent contributor to the New York Times opinion pages, CNN.com and the American Journal of Nursing. She's a fabulous writer. Her I started crying (laughs) in the first chapter, and uh, I just love this book. I thought it was excellent, and I just love how honest she looks at, how honestly that she looks at our American healthcare system. Uh, She has such a unique standpoint of being both a patient and a practitioner, and she's just very personal and real and genuine and... um, very well spoken. I think you're going to love this interview. I am super excited for you to hear more from Teresa. And in terms of what's been going on with me, well, I am in the home stretch of my move from California to Portland, Oregon. And I am, uh, this is one of my last main tasks for this week before I dive into many, many, many boxes. <laughs> Nobody likes moving. Um, and I am certainly not exempt from that. I also have a very big announcement that I'm going to make at the end of the episode, something I've been waiting to tell you all about that I can finally talk about. It's awesome. And, you know, I'm just in this very bittersweet but lovely period of time and transition. And, um, you know, I've met some great people in these last few weeks, ironically, of course, but I've been having such a special period of time and um, I'm so happy and I'm so joyful and I'm so excited about the present and the future and um, just living in a lot of gratitude right now. So with that being said, let's jump into this episode so you can hear more from the author and oncology nurse, Teresa Brown. Hello and welcome to the Tata Cancer Podcast, where we will discuss the physical and mental elements of healing from a breast cancer diagnosis. My name is Junie Boucher. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a breast cancer survivor. When you're diagnosed with breast cancer, you're forced to make life-changing decisions with so much information that's really hard to sift through. My intention is to help provide you with the information you need to make a decision that's going to align your body, mind, and heart so that you can live your best life going forward. I'm going to be your new breast friend. Okay, let's do this. 
The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Please always consult with your doctor for any of your medical needs. So I have here Teresa Brown, and she is the author of Healing When a Nurse Becomes a Patient, which is really a fantastic memoir of her time as a breast cancer patient after being an oncology nurse. And um, I'm so happy to have you here, Teresa. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. And, and I will tell you that, you know, so her, your people sent me this book and from the very first chapter, I started to cry <laughs> because <laughs> I related to it so much. And, um, and there were so many things in your story that were congruent with mine. And it, I, it was a very moving book. You're an excellent writer and, uh, you offer such a unique perspective. So I just want to, want to thank you and just right off the bat, tell everybody that, you know, this is, this is a really, really interesting book the way you, the way it's set up and, uh, and your writing style is really accessible and relatable. And, um, I just appreciated it a lot. Oh, well, so many compliments. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'm really, I'm really glad. I, I mean, I think my writing tends to be accessible anyway, but I really wanted this book to be accessible to as many people as possible. And even people may not know this, doesn't always come up, but I have a PhD in English. I taught English in college, back to school to become a nurse, which I can tell that story if you're interested. But anyway- I was gonna ask you about that. Yeah, so there's one point in the book where I thought I really wanna bring in this piece from the Shakespeare play, King Lear. And I thought, okay, how am I gonna do that? And so I just say, as as you know, because you've read the book, Mm -hmm. but- it's now time for some Shakespeare because yeah. I don't want anyone to feel like, what, why is she talking about Shakespeare? I don't know anything about that. I want people to feel like I'm inviting you in. I'm holding your hand. I'm, I'm with you all the way through this. Yeah. Well, you do such a beautiful job of weaving these stories, you know, from, from stories of your experience as an oncology nurse to stories of your survivorship and, and, you know, the trials and tribulations and the, the trial and error, I guess you could say of, of that part of the experience. And I thought it was really cool the way you did that, but yeah, I wanted to ask you because I know you mentioned that in the book that you had a, a, you said a PhD in English, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where, when, um, And I'd love for you to talk about your other book as well, but yeah. When did you make the switch from that into nursing? Yeah, that was about 20 years ago now. It's, it's hard. Time flies, you know, but um, (laughs) yeah. So my dad's retired now, but he was a professor in Southern Missouri where I grew up and I watching him, I thought this is the greatest job in the world. This is what I want to do. You know, mold young minds, help people think, And so I got a PhD and I became a professor and I realized that my child idea of the ideal job was not the ideal job for the adult Teresa Brown. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I liked teaching, but it just didn't have that fire in the belly kind of feeling, which I Mm -hmm. wanted. And 
while I was sorting that out, uh, I also became a mom and it was really having our son at first that got me thinking about the more caretaking parts of me. And then I got pregnant with twins and I always say that pregnancy was planned, but the twin part was not. (laughs) And that was the biggest shock of my life in a good way. I mean, cancer was a huge shock too, but not in a good way. So um, I had midwives and perinatologists for that pregnancy. So I got this amazing healthcare, this very hands-on care, very personal friend feeling care from the midwives. And then perinatologists are doctors who specialize in embryos and fetuses before they're born. So this very high tech Um, very based on data and lots of thorough understanding of how babies develop while they're inside women. And that was amazing. And I, I learned a lot about healthcare. And then when the girls were about 16 months old, we had a friend visit who's a nurse who's also named Teresa. And I told her that I thought the midwives had the coolest job in the world. And she looked at me and she said, Teresa, you could do that job. Mm. And it had never crossed my mind Mm -hmm. that I could become a nurse. And I started to look into it and found out that I could actually become a nurse. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, it's it's not forbidden if you have a PhD or if you thought you were going to be a humanities professor. And literally a month later, I was taking chemistry because now I had to go back to school after saying I would never go back to school, I had to go back to school to take all the science classes I needed. So I took one class a semester, ended up doing University of Pittsburgh accelerated nursing program, and the rest is history. So it was, yeah. it was really my kids, but also finding that I wanted a job that was more about people and mixing it up and being in that in-between space, which I feel like the nurse occupies between what's going on with the doctor and the decisions the doctor is making and what's going on with the patient and how they're Mm -hmm. feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just, that was the fire in my belly that teaching at that time in my life was not giving me. Yeah. And that, and, you know, it's, it's amazing and wonderful. And I love to talk about this on the podcast of like, you know, you're kind of recreating, we get to recreate our life as many times as we want to, regardless of age. And I think one of the gifts of cancer for a lot of people is, and this was, you know, prior to your cancer diagnosis, but just the, the realization that you get a new start all the time and and you can really direct your life. I think that's wonderful. And I have a soft spot for nurses myself. I don't know how it happens, but I just have a lot of dear friends who are nurses and I have, yeah. And I love, um, I don't think I could do it personally, (laughs) but I mean, it's just so much patience and you talk a lot about compassion in the book and, you know, there's a a big call to compassion. I think you also speak about that as well, Mm -hmm. right? You're a, a speaker. Yeah. Well, that was what impelled me to write the book was Mm -hmm. because as a nurse, I knew there were problems in the healthcare system. I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock basically to not know that there are problems in the U S healthcare system. I write, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, especially after the past few years with COVID when we've 
heard again and again and again about problems in the healthcare system. And we've known for a long time that there are issues with people being able to afford healthcare and there's racism in healthcare. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we could spend a whole hour, we could spend a whole day talking about the problems, right? So I knew there were problems, but I thought I care so much. All the people I work with care so much. We all work so hard. We make it okay for patients. Mm -hmm. And then when I was a patient, I realized that's just not true that someone working so hard can't make up for all the ways big and small that I felt like I really was not seen as a human being while I was getting treatment. The treatment wasn't organized for me. I called it DIY cancer cares and do it yourself. Yeah. You know, there was, there was no navigator. There was not even a piece of paper I was given that said, okay, first you call a surgeon, then you'll need to do this. Then this needs to happen. And that's what got me to write the book, seeing that gap between what we in the field think is going on with care. Like we're great. We love patients. Mm -hmm. We make a difference and realizing for a patient, it doesn't work like that. And and first of all, that's a terrible burden to put on caregivers. Right. And we saw during COVID how so many people just could not take that burden. Mm -hmm. They could not be sort of the support for all of what was going wrong in healthcare. It was just too much. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I want to make a plea for having more compassion in healthcare for treating people like human beings. And I feel like so often when someone says something like that, immediately you hear the, we can't do that. It's too expensive. Can't afford that. But it's not expensive is the thing. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't need a chief compassion officer. You don't need a patient (laughs) compassion initiative um, because where I did radiation oncology, which was the same hospital where once I got diagnosed, they weren't following me. They weren't helping me. But in that same hospital at radiation oncology, they were amazing. And it was simple, basic stuff. They Mm -hmm. sat down with me. They told me, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have radiation for four weeks. You're going to come five days a week. You're always going to be at the same time. That's your time. Um, They showed me a video of the treatment that had these, you know, big, huge machines moving around. And, um, and I didn't, really even remember the video that well, but the fact that they showed it to me mm-hmm. was really comforting. So to me, that's fascinating that it, it's not even that people need to understand every single little detail, but they need to know that the people caring for them want them to understand. Mm-hmm. And so there was that, the receptionist was incredibly nice and the texts who see person after person every single day, right? That's what they do. And sometimes they were really busy. One of the weeks I was there, they said they were working from seven in the morning to seven in the evening. That's how busy they were. And yet every single time, 20 appointments, every single time. Hey, Teresa, how are you? Amazing. And they told me, we know that you don't want to be here. So we have to be extra nice. (laughs) <laughs> and it, it, it was huge. You know, the, the last day I brought lunch into them just to say, thank you. You saw me and now I see you. 
it's it's simple and didn't cost anything, doesn't take any extra time to say, hey, Teresa, how are you? Then to sort of ignore me and point where I'm supposed to lie down, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but but it, it's an attitude that has to come from the top. Obviously, I'm very passionate about this. No, and I think it's amazing. And and you talk, and a lot of breast cancer survivors I've interviewed and myself included, you talk about the bedside manner in each of the different sort of treatment, um, relationships that you had. And, uh, I think there was a lot of, there was a lot I could relate to. And I, I absolutely agree with, with what you're saying. And I guess as somebody in who's been in not nursing or radiology, but in customer service and dealing with people who are in stressful situations in a past career, like, yeah, that compassion piece is so important, but I guess I wonder it always, I'm always so curious about the fact that medical professionals work these crazy hours in these super intense situations and the burnout is real. I mean, you know, for, for someone who's, you know, you, you detail a couple different situations where someone is clearly burnt out on their job and then it's reflected in their uh, response to you and I just wonder, I mean, do you, why is, why is that? That might not even be a question you can answer, but why do they make shifts so long? And is it a mat? Do you think the difference between that radiology center and perhaps where you had your diagnostic mammogram could be in just the management overworking people, or is there just too much of a nursing shortage or I don't know. Yeah. It just feels like a lot to ask of humans you know? Yeah. So many great questions. And I think the hours certainly don't help. And you brought up my uh, second book. So I'm going to also called the shift one nurse, 12 hours, mm-hmm. four patients lives. And I, I, I want to mention the subtitle because when that book came out, so many interviewers asked me, why do nurses work 12 hour shifts? Yeah. Which really surprised me. Cause I, I didn't know that people knew about that or cared about that but they cared a lot and they knew that mistakes go up. They saw it as really a problem and Mm -hmm. it is a problem. If you look at the data, it it really is. So it, it started out as a way to make scheduling easier. And then nurses came to really like it because you work three shifts on and then you have four days off. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, The other benefit of it, which is real is you cut out a handoff from one nurse to another. Mm -hmm. So how I felt as a positive aspect of it is I don't have to worry so much about balls being dropped because I'm there and I'm the one juggling all the balls. Now data also shows that after 10 hours, it's more likely whether I'm aware of it or not, that I will drop one of those balls. Mm -hmm. Um, And we could certainly make handoffs better. You know, we could set up the electronic health record in such a way to make continuity of care be something that was electronically built in to the system rather than it still being a sort of mouth to mouth, person to person kind of thing, which is very weird if you think about it. Um, Yeah, there's no standard is, is, I think you mentioned that like, there's not really a standard, um, like formula for that handoff? 
No, which huh, is, is also crazy. strange. Yeah. And I've heard doctors say, or I've had them say to me, wow, nurses seem so much better at handoffs than we are. So when they reduced the hours that medical residents, those are the doctors in training were allowed to work. You got these complaints like, oh, information is getting lost. Patients aren't being followed as well. We need to go back to working 18 hour, 20 hour days. And I said, no, you need better handoffs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like this is a, this is a strange logic. <laughs> probably. Yes. Very strange, very strange logic. And probably a sociologist studying healthcare could figure out wh- why this intense focus on, no, it's all about me, the caregiver, the person in charge, rather than why is it about us, the caregivers and nurses just have that so much more built into our culture. Cause we know we're doing shift work. Mm-hmm. We know that when our shift is done, we're leaving. And when you're in nursing school, that's consciously part of the training. The day ends the school day, but it's also a day in the hospital, the shift, the day ends and you all leave together. Mm-hmm. No one says, wait, I want, really want to see what's going to work out with this patient. No, everybody leaves the floor at the same time. So in some ways it's a little healthier for us or potentially can be, uh, it doesn't mean it always plays out that way, but yeah. So the long shifts do not help. And again, we saw that during COVID it's one thing to work three twelves and have four days off, but if you're working 16 hours, 16 hours, 16 hours, and you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it, people can't do that. Most people, yeah. a lot of people, some people can, and they did. Some people uh, felt, you know, a renewed sense of commitment and urgency and energy that powered them through. And I think that's wonderful, but a lot of people are not going to be able to do that. So yes, scheduling people are overworked. There aren't enough nurses, but then I think there just also is not a focus on are the receptionists here being polite? Mm-hmm. Um, are we, so for example, I'll, I'll just tell one story from the book. Mm-hmm. So it was a follow back mammogram and ultrasound where I first got diagnosed and the radiologist said, well, you won't leave here today without a biopsy. And just to explain to people, a scan can never tell you hundred percent that you have cancer. And that even goes for skin cancers. You know, a dermatologist can look at it and say, that looks like skin cancer, mm-hmm. but she has to get a sample of that tissue. So they needed a sample of the mass they saw in my breast. And then a pathologist would look at that and say whether it was cancerous or not. So that's the definitive test. They have to look at the cells. And so you won't leave today without biopsy. Went to sit down where you schedule the biopsies and my face was streaked with tears. And I I know I was sitting hunched over and really looking like it was the worst day of my life. And I sat there and I sat there and then someone walked by and said, oh, she leaves at three. You just missed her. And I am not a violent person, but (laughs) I wanted to slam that woman into the wall and really hurt her. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Which is not something I do, not a way that I feel 
I was intensely surprised by how angry that made me, Mm -hmm. but I was scared. I thought I was going to die. And I felt like everyone here needs to get that and be a little bit less casual. Let's be not quite so casual about this. And so setting that tone and that attitude has to come from the top. And there must've been someone in radiation oncology who felt like it was so important that patients feel cared for. Whereas where I got my mammograms, that just wasn't there, or maybe it was there, but they weren't pulling it off. They weren't implementing it the right way. Maybe there was always a problem with this person leaving a few minutes early. Cause on my watch, it was two fifty nine. Um, yeah. I think that was the part that really is like the kicker Yes, in the right. story. You're like, like it, she leaves at three and it's two fifty nine. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Was there not a mechanism whereby someone told that person, we're going to have a patient coming who needs a biopsy. I'm really sorry, but you can't go home. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but I, you know, I say in the book, it was the first time after I was diagnosed that I realized indifference can feel like cruelty. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really powerful. And that was, I will tell you, that's the story that, that made me cry. And then like in the very beginning and I was like, oh boy, what, what am I in for with this book? It's going to be really intense. And, um, and I did plow through it, but I had a similar experience. And I think you, um, you know, just that the, I believe you went, you kind of went into that whole appointment anyway, thinking it was nothing. And that's also my, my own experience. I had really pushed my partner off who was like, I'm going to come with you. And I really pushed him off and he just kept insisting. And I'm so glad that I did. And, and you didn't quite make that choice. Um, and, and you talk about how that unfolded in the book, you know, and, um, but you, I love this quote that's at the, you know, on the inside flap, it says when an oncology nurse is diagnosed with cancer, she has to confront the most critical, terrified, angry patient she's ever encountered herself. (laughs) And, uh, and the, you know, I, uh, you can feel from your compassionate tone and your theme of compassion in the book that that is not who you are, but this very primal instinct clearly was coming out of you and, and it shows up in various points in the book in, and I think it made me think a lot about that, um, transition for a lot of women in breast cancer is it can be one of the first times in maybe your whole life when this like warrior in you is awakened. And, and I really saw that in you. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk about that, you know, let's give our, our listeners just a little bit of background. So what, type of cancer did you have? What stage and and what treatments did you have, if you don't mind? Right. So I had invasive breast cancer, which again, sounds terrible. (laughs) Um, The wording, yes. And scary, but what that, so there's, you can get ductal cancer carcinoma, which means a cancer that stays in the milk duct. 
and that's called DCIS, just, just in case people have heard these acronyms. Mm -hmm. So what was invasive about my cancer was that it had left the milk duct and invaded regular breast tissue. But I think we need a different name. I agree. <laughs> like, like breast, you know, full breast, breast kit. I haven't given this a lot of thought, but something besides invasive, which yes. sounds terrible. Yes. Um, and also when I saw the pathology report, it said that I had DCIS and, you know, invasive ductal carcinoma. And then I thought I had two different kinds of cancer mm -hmm. and the radiologist said, no, it's, it's, it's just the same cancer just, well, it, then I think you just need one name so that it's not so confusing and scary to patients. So I had invasive breast cancer, which meant it had left the milk duct. Um, it was one centimeter, it was slow growing. So it was stage one um, and they did not find it in my lymph nodes, um, which was great. Yeah. And I needed lumpectomy. So a, a surgical removal of the tumor, but not the breast and then radiation. I did not need chemotherapy. And then started uh, an anti-estrogen drug called tamoxifen, which people will be very familiar with. If oh yeah. We talk them. about tamoxifen a lot on, on yeah. this, on this podcast. It's kind of one of my passion points of it just, yeah. Um, so kind of going back to that story of the diagnosis, you know, you, yeah, you weren't able to make, what was it? The ultrasound appointment because the receptionist had left uh, the biopsy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you right. had to wait. Um, yeah, you had to, you had to wait to do that. Therefore creating this big gap of time when, if anybody diagnosed with breast cancer knows you're, you're basically freaking out <laughs> and there were results in the computer, right. That you weren't able to, to get because of this. Right. So I had to wait for the biopsy and initially when, so I called the next morning to schedule and she gave me something two weeks away. And I just said, no, two weeks away. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine? And uh, I mean, you can actually, cause you went through it, but yeah, I had a lot of waiting in my story, so I get it. And it's, yeah, it, but it's the most, for me, it was one of the hardest things, but, but you kind of, you brought out that warrior. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because I was used to being in the hospital where things moved. And as a nurse, if things weren't moving, I knew how to get them to move, you know, after I'd been in the job for a few years. So I just felt like I'm not accepting that. That's, that's not good enough, but still it took a week mm -hmm. for me to get the biopsy done. And then, and I hated that this is a nurse, but it was a nurse. So the nurse who checked me in and then got the results and called people, instead of telling me the quickest I would get the results of my biopsy, which let's be clear, was going to tell me whether or not I definitively had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. She focused on how probably I wouldn't get them until the weekend had passed. And this was a Tuesday. And I, she told me that and I left and I told my husband and sort of shrugged my shoulders and we started to go and my feet were standing up, but I couldn't go forward. Mm. And I just thought, this is, 
not okay. And I didn't want to be that patient who gets angry because I know that no one likes that patient. But on the other hand, this seemed like something that deserved being angry about. Mm -hmm. And so went back and tried to get a better answer from the nurse and, and didn't get one. And then left an angry message on the helpline of the center and actually called my primary care doctor. And the next day he had the results. Yeah. So so that was the thing. I don't, I don't even understand why someone would act like that. And just like, well, you know, it's just going to be impossible for you to get results before Monday. And that gets to your question. I think about, is that person just so burned out that they need a change in job. You know, definitely they need someone to sit down with them and say, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And that's another reason for people to, to complain. But what I tell people is, please complain in a very specific way. You know, don't just say, <laughs> this was a horrible, rude person who made me cry or, or whatever. You know, here's what happened. Here's what she said you know, why are you handling things like this? So Mm -hmm. gesture as much as you can toward the system problem, you know, Mm -hmm. and and who knows, maybe every single woman who gets a biopsy pressures her for their results. And they're often really late, or she feels like I can't control when I get them. Some doctors Mm -hmm. give them to me in a day. Some doctors give them to me in two weeks. You know, who knows Mm -hmm. what was on her that was leading her to come across as so unfeeling to me. Um, It it isn't necessarily that she's an unfeeling person, but so if people can, when they complain, make it clear what was happening and don't put it all on one person because it's never that simple. And it also lets the people in management kind of off the hook. Oh, well, she was just having an off day, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, or, oh, that's the third time you've been difficult, you know, now we're taking disciplinary action or whatever, but then they're not forced to change anything or really look at how they could make routines that served all patients. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, with the, with the process of analyzing a biopsy, I mean, I wonder, I mean, is it just a matter of the right person looking at a, a slide or, or, I mean, like, I'm just curious because in your situation, you were able to get the results a day later. I mean, obviously there's a bureaucratic process that holds things up. Um, and somebody has to tell you the right person, quote unquote, but like the actual scientific process of being able to analyze that tissue specimen, it must be pretty quick, right? I, would think so because I got the results so quickly. And this is another thing that I have no way of knowing if this affected my particular situation, but this is happening where hospitals are outsourcing lab results sometimes, Mm -hmm. probably not breast cancer, but I really don't know. Mm -hmm. So instead of investing in their own lab and a team of pathologists, they may send things out to centers and other places. And this is the kind of cost cutting measure that the public doesn't think about, isn't aware Mm -hmm. of, because why would you? You might think, oh, that makes sense. But then do you realize, okay, maybe that's a difference between in a day or a week. Yeah. 
finding out if you have cancer and why do we tolerate that kind of trade-off? Well, the point is because most people don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and so saying, I want a quicker result. I want an appointment sooner. If more of us do that, it may bring about change. It, it will also really frustrate you <laughs> and, oh, and it's hard. It's not easy <laughs> to do that. It it is hard and you'll feel a sense of judgment. And as I talk about in healing, especially for women, it's hard to be angry Um, for black women. It's even harder to be publicly angry and black women Mm -hmm. general tend to have much worse outcomes for breast cancer in the U S than white women. Mm -hmm. None of this stuff is, is easy, but I like you're talking about being a warrior (laughs) <laughs> that's what Audre Lorde, the black lesbian yes. poet who wrote the cancer journals, you know, several decades ago now talks about being a warrior just in your life. And then breast cancer just required her to be a, a new and different kind of warrior. So I think that's great. If instead of getting something pink for breast cancer, we should, <laughs> should all get a, like a breastplate and a spear, right? And yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of reforms that I, you're bringing up. I think that are great. Yeah, not calling it invasive and making all the language so scary. The whole pink thing, because I don't know any breast cancer survivor who who is is down with the pink stuff. Like they, nobody and and everybody gives it to you. It's all the people around you because they're like, oh right, we're supposed to give you pink stuff and we're supposed to wear pink stuff and. And, and I think any breast cancer survivor, yeah, is typically like, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> but that I do think that is a, um, a powerful transition that happens for a lot of women of just like almost being forced into becoming more self-centered. And mm-hmm. I say that in a, you know, in the nicest way possible. And also because you, your limits are so pushed, you know, like radiation fatigue for so many women, they're like, well, I I can't, I just can't, I can't cook dinner for my kids. They're having to cook it for themselves. And it's like, you know what? That's great. They're 10 and 13. They, this is a great time for them to do that or leaning on community and, um, letting women realize like, there is a lot of strength in not trying to take everything on yourself. Have you ever, this is, I'm, I'm in this course right now with like holistic cancer care. And one of the things that comes up is, is the cancer personality. Have you ever heard about that? I have. And Susan Sontag in, um, illnesses metaphor wrote a lot about that because when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, she really felt that the cancer personality Mm -hmm. and she was that book was pretty successful in getting that talk to die down and now I worry that it's starting up again but the Mm -hmm. idea that yeah if you're negative you keep emotions inside those are the people who get cancer but then ironically we would have patients sometimes who were really unpleasant people and maybe cancer made them unpleasant or maybe they were that way already. But then people would say, well, that person's too mean to die. So, well, it can't be both, you know? (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's funny. Like, you know, so that kind of shows me how ridiculous that is, but it's another one of these really unfair burdens that gets put on cancer patients. Like you 
we're sitting on a bunch of negative emotion and you know, you, you, or I might say, I'm, I'm not even sure what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow it, that's, that's part of the diagnosis. You didn't have the right kind of personality mm. and it's, it's so pernicious and n- no one says that about people who have heart disease or people who have, there's no diabetes personality, right? Um, <laughs> that, that's a good point. Yes. You know, people who have asthma, where, whereas you could really see it with asthma, you're just too stressed out. You know, that's why you can't breathe because you can't control your stress. Nobody says that they Mm. say, here's an inhaler, here's a steroid, Mm -hmm. you know, let's help you with this. Um, And so cancer has all these burdens put on it, the war metaphors Mm -hmm. that it's um, some kind of a gift that in the end, you're glad you got, I mean, you may feel like, I'm sorry, my dog is whining. Um, Oh, that's okay. (laughs) Hear that. Okay. People hear that. That's not me making that weird noise. Um, Uh, you know, that in the end, you're sort of glad you got it because you learned to value life in a new way. I mean, you may learn to value life in a new way, which is wonderful, but no one has to be glad they got cancer. Um, you know, all these burdens we put on cancer patients that don't go on any other disease. No one feels like they have to say, wow, I was in a three car pileup. I, I lost one of my legs, but you know, I'm just really glad that happened because now I can walk on one leg or, you know, I mean, yes. I'm, yes. I'm being ridiculous, but you know what I mean? No. And I, and I think, I think you make an interesting point, I guess for me personally, you know, I, I find I do relate to, to some of that. I just think it's interesting. It's an interesting thing that I don't think everybody should be forced into that sort of like toxic mm. positive positivity, but I do think it's an interesting thing to work on in terms of like allowing, allowing this diagnosis and this, this forced sort of like self-reflection to come in. And if it becomes a transformative experience where you're like, you know what? Yes, I do repress things or I do, um, I do deny a lot of my feelings and you know what, I don't want to be that person anymore. And I don't want that to be my story or my pattern. And I, 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 I've found it very empowering in that way, but I also think that, you know, I relate to, I remember and from my own experience, because I had stage one early cancer and people just saying like, Oh, everything's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And this was before I had all the information and that actually would make me very angry because I said, you know, like you don't have a crystal ball. Like I'm not trying to lean into the drama of this whole experience, but like, you can't tell me that. And I kind of resent you telling me that. And I didn't say that to people's faces because I knew they were coming from a, a, um, they were trying to comfort me. And a lot of people don't know what to say when you're dealing with something like that, but yeah, like this sort of toxic positivity, especially with breast cancer, because it's tends to be really treatable in many forms. But, um, but, you know, I guess I've never really thought about it like that, that there is no <laughs> diabetes personality and, and, um, you know, that we put a lot on people. Um, and I guess, you know, every, everybody's experience is so 
different and it brings up so many different emotions. Like I know people, I've interviewed people on this podcast who said that was one of the most helpful things for me was people saying everything's going to be fine. And whereas for me, I was like, yeah, that made me want to punch them. And, and I don't consider myself an angry person either. So it's, it's just so unique and it, it, everybody's, um, everybody's triggered by different things, especially when you're in this incredibly volatile place of waiting. Yeah, that, that is really interesting to point that out. And maybe it's asking people, what can I do? Or first asking someone, how are you feeling? And then if they're saying, I'm so distraught, I can't see this working out. And then it might be appropriate to say, you know what, I think it's not going to be as bad as you think. I mean, maybe I wouldn't say it's all going to be fine, but Mm -hmm. then it's starting with that person. Where are they rather than coming in with your own script? But Mm -hmm. I hear you, people don't know what to say. It is very hard. Um, I felt like one of the most empathic things I ever said to one of a patient, one of our patients was cancer really sucks. (laughs) And people like that. They do. It's simple. It's true. Um, And, and I want to get back to say, yeah, I certainly do not want to take anything away from any woman and, and you in particular, since we're talking to each other who felt like yeah, I did become a warrior with cancer. I did find it transformative because I also found aspects of it very transformative. I felt like my eyes were open to problems in the job that I had not fully seen before, right? That's what mm-hmm. I why I wrote the book, which is difficult and painful, but also really, really, really important. Mm-hmm. So I hear you. And if if someone feels like, this ended up doing good for me. That is wonderful. I just don't want anyone to be compelled to say, you know, in the end, I'm glad I got the cancer because Mm -hmm. you don't have to make that leap. You know, any person can have something bad happen to them, whether it's a death in the family, a, a divorce, a serious illness. And for some people that will send them into a tailspin, right? For other people, they're able to transform, transcend, and that's amazing. But then we don't feel the need to go back and say, you know, I bet you're glad your husband died because look how it's really changed your life in a positive way. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 sort of giving the disease credit for what we accomplish on our own, mm-hmm. and that's that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree, and I think that it just has to it has to be your own experience. And, you know, I know when I was, there was a time when I was like, man, I, I'm not having that, um, experience that a lot of cancer patients have where they change their whole life. And, um, and I felt kind of bummed out about it, (laughs) (laughs) but then at the same time I did, I mean, and, and I think like what you said, yeah, like you don't have to appreciate it. Like that doesn't mean you're ungrateful or you're not strong. Um, it is what it is for you. And, uh, you know, I did end up kind of making a lot of changes in my life, but yeah, you're right. Like I don't have to give the disease, the credit, like I just made changes in my life. And if that was, have played a part, like 
you know, that's, that's cool too. <laughs> I want, I wanted to emphasize something that you said about your partner ended up coming to the appointment with you mm-hmm. and in, in healing, I describe how they told me after the, the ultrasound, the, the initial diagnosis, don't drive yourself. Mm-hmm. And I called my daughters who were 10 minutes away. They had just started college at Pitt and the hospital where I went is somewhat close by. And so again, this is that I'm in healthcare. I'm a nurse. I'm superhuman. I can do anything. I can drive 10 minutes and ended up getting stuck on this road where students cross back and forth. And it was just it was horrible. It was so horrible. And if I can tell people, please do not feel you have to be superhuman. If you've just gotten a diagnosis of cancer, if you're going to a follow-up mammogram, have someone come with you, call someone and ask them to help you. I really was not good at that. And it, it just makes it harder and there's no need to do that. So I applaud you for having a partner who insisted and my husband now insists on coming to my appointments. And even now I'll say, you know, it's fine. And he mm-hmm. says, isn't it easier if I come? And I said, oh yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. It really is. And I couldn't believe how, I mean, I don't think I could have driven if I wanted to, you know, from, and and I was in a similar situation as you, as they, um, yeah, the, the radiologist told me in the ultrasound, I'm, very, I'm quite sure this is, but we don't know. And I was not expecting that answer. And then they were like, can you go out in the waiting room for a little bit? And, um, and then we're going to sterilize and do the biopsy. And I was like, I I just was like flung out there and just like a mess. And, uh, and it was, you know, it was really, it was really hard to, um, you know, I left that appointment without, I mean, they had taken the the tissue and the biopsy, but I, I wasn't, yeah, if I had tried to drive home and so, yeah, that part of the book, when you describe this like slow-mo of you driving to meet your daughters and then just, you know, I don't have kids, but just even thinking about telling your kids, I mean, facing your kids, I'm sure there was a comfort of wanting to be around them, but also this intense weight on you of like, now I have to tell my children this thing that's going to be really traumatic for them, you know? Right. And, and I, so much of that evening, I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes a blur. Yeah. Yeah. That's another reason why like have somebody else with you and at all your other appointments, especially in the beginning there, because you're just not going to, you might not remember it at all. It might be hard to retain the information because there's so much coming at you. And if you're not a nurse, you know, there, you, you had that medical background, but you know, so many patients, this is like terminology they're not familiar with. Right. It really is like suddenly being thrown into a different world and it's hard. I will say I did learn from that. Another experience I describe is being close to finishing radiation and being very tearful. And the radiation oncologist said, oh, this is completely normal. When people are on the treatment path, they have something to do. They have something to think about. It's when they get done with treatment that all that fear rushes back in. And so I was leaving 
radiation after, or it must've been a different, I can't remember because I ended up driving. So now I'm, but anyway, what I do remember is this very tearful meeting and then uh, calling my son and saying, can you come and drive me home? Mm-hmm. Because I, I just feel like I'm not going to be able to drive. And that is such a big deal for me to have done that. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say that's maybe a small silver lining I hadn't thought about before is being able to say, wow, I am vulnerable. Mm. Do you feel, so do you feel like that's something that's stuck with you in your, you know, survivorship of just like allowing yourself to be vulnerable and ask for help more, or is it still a real struggle? Uh, No, it, it has stuck with me. And also being able to admit that I'm tired or, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if I want to go back to clinical work. I really miss it. I really, mm-hmm. really miss it, but I can't see myself going back to a practice that just feels physically punishing and where mm-hmm. it's so much about paperwork when I really just want it to be about patients. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely big life lessons that, that I think also a lot of people got after COVID, right? With this yes. sort of national confrontation with mortality, um, you know, and, and some people lost others very dear to them, which thank mm-hmm. goodness that didn't happen to me or my kids or my husband. Um, but yeah, just, I'm not willing to push myself to be superhuman anymore. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, it feels good. It's a little weird in American culture to say that that's how you feel. <laughs> oh, I, I know. I, I know it's yeah. In a, as an, as an American and as a female, I think and you're a mother and a nurse, you've got like all these sort of like superhuman hats. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And do, so how long has it, like, how long have, um, you been out of treatment, your active treatment? Yeah, four and well, I was diagnosed four and a half years ago. So I'm coming up on the magic five years. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, yeah. What about you? <laughs> um, I am coming up on three years in, okay. in a oh, few wow. months. Okay. Yeah. So I'm still, you know, in the like baby stages, but but yeah, it's you know, some time has passed. For me, the two-year mark was kind of like, okay, that made me feel good. And and yeah, but five years is I five years is a is a big milestone. Are you gonna do anything? fun or? Well, we're actually, one of the things I'd always wanted to do my whole life was do a safari in Mm. Africa. So we're doing that this August. Uh Um, We were going to go last summer, ended up postponing, but now I think the timing is perfect because we'll get back and then I'll have my five-year mammogram, you know, a couple weeks after that. So it, Mm. it feels, it feels very organic and Mm -hmm. Obviously I'm, I'm hoping for the best and that I will be clear. Yes. Um, yes. I am also hoping, hoping for the best. And you, so you're on like a, so you're on like a tour right now. Kind of, well, I, mm-hmm. are you on it? Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. And the, I know the right, so the writing is, um, and you talk about this in the book, just sort of your evolution of like, you know, with your tamox, the tamoxifen experience and how that went for you. And then trying to go back to work and your new perspective on work, which I thought thought was really interesting. And then 
so you are focusing on the book right now. And how long did it take you to write the book? I'm just curious. That is such a good question because I, I wanted to write it almost right away. And then it took me over a year to get to a place mentally where I could write it. it. Everything was so fresh and new and jumbled. I couldn't get it into a story form that anyone but me could make sense of. Uh-huh. So that had to be gotten through and then I figured it out. And then, so I ended up finishing during the pandemic. It's, it's really hard to say because it, mm-hmm. it just came in pieces. Mm-hmm. It, the book in so many ways parallels my experience of being a patient where mm-hmm. there are a lot of things I couldn't remember. Suddenly I would think back on being a nurse and gain some insight about that. And then even going forward is trying to integrate, yeah, going back to work, things that I did, talking with friends, going hiking with my daughters, integrating all that into, okay, this is the story of my life, but it's also the story of me being a cancer patient on tamoxifen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't have a good, clear, solid two to three years, something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's, it's, I, it's almost like the book, the way it's set up could be like essays that stand alone. There, there are so many different, the way that you have it. I I really enjoyed that. I mean, there's a continuity to it for sure, but like a lot of the chapters I felt like could, you know, any breast cancer survivor could pick up in, in the book and, and read it and understand where you're coming from. And you, you weave a lot of like sort of your, um, I don't know, your, your process is really interesting how you, you make a patient experience parallel with, with yours and, and the lesson come out. And, um, you know, as we're kind of wrapping, wrapping up, I mean, we've touched on some really, you've had some really good advice. You know, we talk about don't, don't try to go alone to some of these early, if you're going to complain, which, you know, complain if you want to, but be, be sort of specific, but also, you know, recognize that it's not one person. I think that's really powerful of just, um, and I'm also just curious, like what, I mean, how do, how do we change this this system? How, I mean, it, that's a huge question. I don't really think you can answer, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it, there is a, a real kind of call to, to action in the book of like, we have to be better. And I really think that the, the being better has to come from so many places. Cause it's not just on the personnel that, need to be more compassionate. Like clearly, like we, we touched on, like that needs to come from the top down and like build it in. Like, how do you build in more almost like self-care for these people? Cause to me, when I see that as frustrating as it is, like, I see it as just somebody who's become a little hardened, who is Mm -hmm. overworked and is, is a human being who's like struggling because I don't think anybody goes into nursing or, or medical care, like without some sense of duty or compassion or, or desire mm-hmm. to serve. But, 
any human being is going to burn out or get a little um, calloused if if they are constantly um, pushed beyond their means. And you illustrate so well in the book of like, I mean, nurses, there's so much that is asked of nurses and so many that go above and beyond and don't necessarily get compensated for it right. in many situations. Right. And, um, you make, I don't, I'm not going to spoil this, but you make a really good point at the, at the end of the book that I'm, I'm very aligned with, uh, you know, about a potential solution and how to take like the, the money motivation out of it. But you know, we've got a long way to go. And I think that it's very brave of you. Um, oh, this was a question I wanted to, to ask you is have you had, what have been the reactions of some of your colleagues in the, the, I mean, have they, I guess it just came out the book, right, I got an right. advanced copy, but are you, um, I'm just curious, like if you're, what your feelings are about how it may be received by the medical community, because yeah, I, f- I feel in such solid ground with this book that if if I got that typical reaction of, well, that's pie in the sky, you can't expect that, you know, I can always say, but they did it at radiation oncology. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. It, it has to be a real shift in orientation. And my hope is that we'll get a reset after COVID. You know, mm-hmm. so many nurses have quit that we're now stuck in a nursing shortage and there's going to have to be some kind of sea change if we're going to be able to give people the health care that we want. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage people, pay attention, think about who you're voting for. Are they standing up for affordable health care for all Americans or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and speak clearly and often <laughs> if you can, to the people at your hospital or your doctor's office and say, wow, this was so meaningful that I felt so cared for in this capacity, or wow, this was so hard that I felt like I just got shoved into a room. Nobody said anything to me. I had no idea what was going on. Um, Just more and more bringing people back to what's important which I know is really hard because we don't want to put all the emphasis on the caregivers. That's, that's too much, mm-hmm. but I don't care what motivates CEOs. Like if they feel like, okay, we're going to encourage compassion because patients want that. I don't care if anyone's compassionate or not, but I'm going to start supporting that mm-hmm. because then we're going to get higher us news and report rankings and people are going to give us good word of mouth. I would love to see that. Mm-hmm. that that generosity disseminated system wide and mm-hmm. then it becomes a value that people really see as making a difference i i love the point that you just made about like not only complaining when it's warranted but also being communicative about the good care that you receive because i think especially a lot of people in service positions, sometimes that makes all the difference, you know, (laughs) like I'm sure that that radiation oncology team, your gratitude helped fuel them to bring that compassion to the next patient, because, you know, they're, 
there is a lot of energy that goes out to, to treat people with kindness and really just be present to have the energy to be present. So I think you being so expressive in that way. And, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are vocal about that, but you might not even think about it. Not that it needs to be another, um, thing on your plate of things to deal with, but if, you know, in the moment, it doesn't take a lot of energy to say, thank you. That, that, that was really helpful or I appreciate that because those little moments, I think any cancer survivor I've ever talked to, they remember the moments of, um, feeling, uh, the indifference, mm. um, but also just those little the, the compassion is, is very, it's a very intensive memory too. And I think I didn't, I was in so much shock in a lot of those moments that I don't think I had the wherewithal to say anything. Um, but you know, when I go back (laughs) for my scans and stuff like that, it's, you know, I'm going to be more vocal about just, Hey, that was, I, I appreciate your, your kindness or, something. I I think, Uh, yeah. I mean, did you have experiences with, with patients like that, where, I mean, did that, do you feel like that fueled you? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and you're reminding me, I have been planning to take a copy of the book to the radiation oncology department. You know, maybe they can send around, like if they can do it at radon, why can't they do it everywhere else? Yeah. Could send her on that question. Um. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So as we're as we're wrapping up, like where um, I'm going to put all the show shown in all the show notes and stuff like that, but um, like where you can buy the book. But um, are you going to be doing any readings or anything like that, or is it? I know you're doing a lot of podcast appearances and interviews. Yeah, I am doing readings. I had two virtual events this Monday evening, have a virtual and in-person event. And then um, at the start of May, I have another virtual event. But if people go to my website, which is Mm -hmm. TeresaBrownRN.com and go to events, there's a link that will take you to each one. Mm -hmm. And um, also if people want to order the book from my, you can get it anywhere. But if you want to order it from my local independent bookstore, which is City of Asylum Bookstore, Mm -hmm. you will get a signed copy from me. So that's exciting. Awesome. If you want a signed copy or you want a signed copy for your mom or put a Mm -hmm. note in the comments Uh and you'll get a signed copy because they ship anywhere. Uh Uh-huh. And you're in um in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, I'm in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And, uh, and then are you on social media at all? Like if people want to find you that way? Yeah. So I'm at Teresa Brown on Twitter Mm -hmm. and then on Instagram, I'm at Teresa Brown RN 2021. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, 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 yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I so appreciate you coming on and, and talking and, and bringing your unique perspective and, you know, best of luck with the book. I, I really enjoyed it. And I feel like it was just so well done. You're an excellent writer beyond being oh, a nurse and, <laughs> and a professor. You have a lot of, a lot of talent. So I, I highly encourage everyone to get the book and I, I hope you have a wonderful safari 
Thank and, you. Um, and yeah, best. We'll be thinking about you um, for this, this upcoming scan and, and wishing you all the best. Thanks and stay well yourself. <laughs> Thank you so much, Teresa. Okay, take care. Well, that was awesome. If I do say so myself, what what a cool person, what a great perspective. And I love that she had such actionable advice to give from an insider in the healthcare system. So Teresa Brown, yes, get this book. It, it's, it's so, so good. So uh, if you've made it to the end of the episode and you want to hear my big, big news, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I, if you don't already know, I am going to be, and I am absolutely tickled pink and honored to no end to be um, starting July 1st, 2022, I will be the newest member of the Rose City Sexual Health Collective. So moving up to Portland, besides the gorgeous natural beauty, the amazing friends I have up there, there was a work opportunity that I decided to take advantage of, which was to work uh, more closely in the realm of supporting you know, sexual satisfaction through better health. And um, I'll be working alongside three incredibly talented therapists who specialize in, um, you know, sexual satisfaction and, and have different areas of expertise in that, as well as a pelvic floor specialist. And um, I will be the in-house nutrition person because if you aren't aware, you know, libido can be greatly affected by your diet and lifestyle. So bringing my hormone savvy, as well as my particular interest in reclaiming the body after breast cancer treatment or in perimenopause, those will all fuel my practice there and we will support each other. So if you are interested in having a sex coach or nutritional therapy that can support libido and hormone balance and help you potentially mitigate, you know, tamoxifen side effects or medical menopause side effects, or you're just getting a little bit older and, and you feel that your sex drive has waned and you miss it because, you know, it is, it is a good indicator of your health uh, if you have a healthy sex drive. So find us. I will put that in the show notes. Again, it's Rose City Sexual Health Collective. I'm going to be doing some live workshops there. Um, I'll also be on live TV next month what uh july 13th i'm going to be on uh portland's afternoon live i cannot believe it i'm <laughs> terrified and so excited so that is today's episode that is my big news thank you for staying for the entire show i hope it was worth it to you and i hope that you're excited about life and just moving along and and taking things putting one foot in front of the other. So come find me if you would like to uh, submit a question or just, you know, reach out. I am on Instagram and TikTok at Junie Be Well, Facebook, Junie Be Well, and also LinkedIn, Junie Boucher NTP. You can find me on my website. I am still taking one-on-one -on -one virtual clients right now. And uh, that's juniebewell.com. And if you are enjoying the podcast, 
please do me a solid and leave a written review. It uh, not only helps others find us um, who might need this information, but it just, you know, it gives me a, uh, well, it gives me a great boost, but it also lets me know what's resonating with you and, and, you know, what to provide more of. So thank you so much, everybody. Uh, This is Junie. I'll be signing off. And as always, I'm wishing you well. Bye-bye.